electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. This is Squawk Pod. I'm CNBC producer Katie Kramer. Today on our podcast, Eric Schmidt, Google's former CEO and executive chairman on a technology response to COVID-19. Try to imagine your experience in this pandemic right now without these tech companies. You can't participate in the economy without a digital connection now. It used to be that you could. Plus context for that interview from our very own Andrew Ross Sorkin, exclusive to this podcast. The internet right now is the ultimate divider between the haves and the have-nots. If you do not have internet, that is a demonstrable have-not. And journalist Joanne Littman on The She Session, how the pandemic recovery is only as good as its support for women in the workforce. I mean, the fact is we're not going to get this economy back on track if we sort of ignore half of the working population. It's Thursday, May 14th, 2020. Squawk Pod begins right now. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to Squawk Box here on CNBC. I'm Becky Quick, along with Joe Kernan and Andrew Ross Sorkin. First up today on the podcast, Eric Schmidt, a longtime Google executive. He was CEO of the company for a decade from 2001 to 2011. Here's Andrew. They called him the uh, parental supervision or the adult in charge when uh, Larry and Sergey, the two founders, needed some help to actually operate the company. While Schmidt was the adult in the room, it's fair to say Google became Google, moved beyond the search engine that was a verb into the giant $900 billion company we know today as Alphabet. Now he has a new gig and one that hits pretty close to home. Schmidt is advising Governor Andrew Cuomo on pandemic response in New York State, and he joined Cuomo in a briefing last week. Probably the best mind uh, in this country, if not in this on the globe, to do this, and that's Eric Schmidt saw a future that no one else envisioned and then developed a way to get there. You are the person to help us do that. Uh, We are all ready. We're all in. Uh, We are New Yorkers, so we're aggressive about it and we're ambitious about it. Mr. Schmidt, thank you. Thank you, Governor. This isn't the first time Cuomo and Schmidt have collaborated. We found in the CNBC archives this sound from a visit the two made to a Long Island middle school in 2014. Eric Schmidt, let me tell you a funny story about Eric Schmidt. Uh, I called him up a couple of years ago. I was in public service. He was in the private sector. He was in the high-tech world. I said, I have an idea for you, a search engine for the Internet. (laughs) (laughs) And you call it Google. (laughs) He said, Google, what type of name is that? I said, trust me, just go with it, Google. Well, first of all, Eric's just a big thinker. Um, he's always been a big thinker, but he's also an operator. If you really think about what he was able to do with Google on a global stage with tens of thousands of employees, he was really the person who, who organized all of that. And so when you think about the organization that's required to not just think about what the future is supposed to look like, but to execute on it and to be able to actually help think through the systems that are going to be required to be put in place. He's one of those minds that you'd want to have by your side. One thing Eric Schmidt said in our conversation today that stuck with me was the idea that the internet is no longer optional. 
we need to connect for work, for school, for our families, for our community communication. Um, it's not something you can opt out of anymore. This is going to, the, the internet right now is the ultimate divider between the haves and the have nots. If you do not have internet, that is a demonstrable have not situation. And if this pandemic's taught us anything, it's that you have to be connected. You can't even live in this world without some kind of computer that's connected, a mobile phone that's connected. It's funny because when people talk about what poverty means in America, it may no longer just have to do with your economic station in life, but your connected station in life. The fact of the matter is that we're not treating this as an information problem. The core issue you have is that you, you, you don't know whether you're going to get the disease or not. You need some way of knowing whether people have the disease or whether you're likely to get it, and the government needs ways to identify the hotspots. The majority of the, the transmission appears to be from super spreader people and super spreader events, and the ability to build systems that can identify those and then go and deal with them with, uh, deal with both community spread, but also interventions like contact tracing and so forth is the only way we're gonna really lower the numbers. And you heard this in the testimony in the Senate two days ago. It's the ability and the capability of responding to those cases with good identification, isolation, and contact tracing will determine whether you can continue to go forward. So let's talk a little bit about the future work and maybe some of the work you're doing um, with the governor, Governor Cuomo in the state of New York. Um, New York City uh, represents a majority of uh, the tax base and revenue to the city, frankly, uh, is, is, is a huge contributor to the rest of the country and to the tri-state area. And it is relying in large part, the city this is, on public transportation. And I know you've talked about um, offices uh, being spread out and, and, and work changing. But if work really does change, can you be bullish on the state of uh, New York? Can you be bullish on the city of New York over the long term? Or is it fundamentally going to change forever? I am very bullish on New York State and the New York City in the long term. And the governor is doing a really good job of addressing this. He's got the data out and he's actually putting these teams together. I'm fortunate to do one of them. The, the way to think about the next year is we've got to, in 10 years, we've accelerated everything up to one year. So all those digital changes that we've talked about for, for years all happened last month and the, and the month and the next month. So as an example, we're going to focus on telehealth, uh, essentially broadband and, and access to broadband, and how and where we work. Uh, those are at least our first initial three ones. Now, telehealth, well, the 80% of the people are going to the doctor electronically because they don't want to go to the doctor's office in case they get exposed. Well, that's a net improvement in efficiency for everyone. It's so much more convenient to see the doctor virtually than to have to go to their office and wait forever, right? That seems obvious. And then we are going to change the way we work. Um, an example is that we're going to have less density in these buildings, at least until there's a vaccine, which is probably a year and a half, two years kind of time frame. And less density means literally more office space, not less. It also means a different architecture. Because of this transportation problem, some people are not going to want to go into the center of the super cities. They're going to actually want to go to hubs. So you think of it as a hub and spoke system. So when you reimagine all three together, you get a pretty good city and you get a pretty impressive state. And don't bet against America. Don't bet against New York State. We are innovators. We can solve this problem. Would you, though, bet against 
super cities as you describe them over the long term? Meaning, do you think that this, I know so many people who grew up in the city, I grew up in the city, who are now talking about, and not just for the next year or two, they're saying, okay, maybe I should move to the suburbs, or maybe I should move even farther out. Because by the way, if you move to the suburbs, a lot of people take public transportation to get back into the city. But if I'm not going to be going to the city, and I can't participate in the active life of the city in that way, that the value uh, proposition changes. Well, I would argue differently. I think that, that the city will reemerge even stronger, but it will be somewhat different. There's lots of evidence that the super, that the super cities, of which New York is maybe the, the archetype in the world, e- economically, it was a creativity. People are social. They do need to be physically next to each other or near each other. But we will stop pressing the elevator buttons. We will stop holding on to the, ham, uh, the banisters quite as much. Uh, some of the interactions will change, and those are probably permanent. But uh, from my perspective, we're not all going to move to the suburbs. The cities will stay there and, in fact, emerge in a different way. I do think we're going to have to make some changes. So, for example, the buildings in New York, you want to sort of increase the air handling. You want to put in UV filters for the air, th- those sorts of things. Uh, frankly, for things like the subway, people are going to be wearing masks, right? As, as dirty as the subway cars are, the disease is not from the subway car. It's from people transmission. The vast majority of the transmission is person to person. One of the things we've been talking about all morning is schools, though, and how you get uh, schools back up and running. There's such a critical component to the economy because if parents are stuck at home uh, trying to help their their kids to school over Zoom or virtual school, it means they're not at work. How do we confront that challenge, especially when, so, it's unc- so- when, when some of the data suggests that kids are not having problems and then there are these anecdotal, you know, terrible stories? And I think it's really raised questions for parents. There's lots of evidence that the kids can transmit it. They can actually get infected. They just don't show the symptoms. So kids are not immune to this disease. No one is, right? Everyone is, is, is eligible for this dead virus, if you think of it that way. So if you look in Europe, schools are beginning to reopen with various adjustments, uh, more sort of physical constraints. Uh, they are doing dual shifts and so forth. It will be incredibly important for all the schools in America, and in particular those in New York City, to open up by September. I just don't think we can get the economic productivity that we need if we're forcing everybody to stay home and to educate their kids because we can't get the teachers and the kids together. That problem and the transportation problems have to be solved. Now, remember, with, right. with uh, de-densification, you can solve a lot of these problems. The tools in 1918 that we had uh, in the last big pandemic were social distancing, wash your hands a lot, and wear masks. And they had all these ditties and so forth about it, which were very interesting. So we have the same right. tools we had 100 years ago. Now, there's much research. I funded quite a bit of it uh, myself in accelerating uh, both vaccines as well as antivirals and treatments and so forth. We also understand much, much more about this disease than we, in record time in biology. It's a huge, huge boon to that. But the fact of the matter is those are the tools you have. So when you think about how you behave, what can you do? Wear masks. I'm shocked right. that the government doesn't require these things. I mean, it seems obvious because it's a help. It, the mask helps me not spread it to you. Uh, washing hands, social distancing, and being outside. What should? What do you make of what's going to be a battle? I imagine across the country as businesses uh, restart and ask their employees to come back to work. You're already seeing this battle, if you will, play out to some degree with Elon Musk and Tesla in California, where. Uh, as an incentive or an inducement, some people might describe it as bullying. They're, being, they're telling some of those employees, if you don't come to work, 
uh, whether you feel comfortable or not, uh, you won't be able to get unemployment insurance. So how do you think that that's going to, to play over time? Because there's going to be a lot of businesses that are going to be asking people to come to work, some of whom are going to be desperate to come back to work, some of whom are going to say, for whatever reason, I don't want to. It's never a good idea to force your employees under fear of, of losing their jobs to come to work. Uh, it just it doesn't produce the right outcome. The reality is that, that corporations broadly are going to find themselves in roughly three categories. People who are literally cannot go to work because they have kids and so forth and so on. People who don't want to go to work or they are worried about exposure because they have comorbidities and so forth. And people who are just dying to go to work, right? They just can't wait to get out of the house. So my guess is that you're going to see pods of people which will organize themselves for that. This group will be over in this remote place. This group will be in the central office. These people will never come into either because they have legitimate fears until this thing gets resolved, which is a long time. And that these little teams will organize in virtual pods and they'll work it out. So employers will have to give employees some kind of flexibility. If the answer is that the employers are going to be forced to come to work in order to do their job at a genuine fear of, of infection and, and significant health problems. It's going to be a tough time. What do you make of uh, the way you think the world of technology is going to be viewed when this is all over? You know, going into this pandemic, there was what was called the tech lash, the backlash against technology. And now it's so clear that we are as reliant as ever on Amazon and Google and so many other technology companies. Um, Some of that may play in their favor, but you're also seeing uh, lots of criticism and critiques still of Amazon for example? Well, any big company is going to be criticized. And the fact of the matter is, try to imagine your experience in this pandemic right now without these tech companies. So let's give them a little bit of credit. Most of them are relatively inexpensive. Uh, People are now relying on them in a way. It used to be that the internet was optional, right? That you could sort of live with it or live without it. Now you really need it to get through the day. You need it for food, you need it for information, you need it for employment. One of the goals that we have is to make sure that everybody has access to that. So for example, if you look at overall in New York State, there's a real disparity of access to these things. You can't participate in the economy without a digital connection now. It used to be that you could. And by the way, one of the things that the government should be doing as they think about how to deal with stim- stimulus is they need to be doing a significant infrastructure bill. And that infrastructure bill needs to include access to um, technology of one kind or another and communications around the country. This is, remains a problem, especially in rural areas, and it really is a disadvantage. As a country, we want equal opportunity for everybody. And the fact of the matter is that you need a broadband connection in order to participate. Think about kids that are being schooled from home, where the home has no access to cellular and no access to broadband. Literally, the parents are sitting there reading textbooks, right, which maybe they don't even, can not even afford. It's really a problem. We need to address that, and we need to address that quickly. Uh, Eric, geopolitical question. Uh, In one of your roles at Google, you spent a lot of time traveling the world, uh, dealing with countries like China and making some very difficult decisions in the process. Um, When you look at what's taking place now, the posture that our administration is taking towards China, um, what do you think the appropriate end goal or end result should be, given what's what's happening here? So you would think that when we had one common enemy around the world, one common enemy, literally this virus that's, that's killing millions of people all around the world, we would unite, but instead we have decoupled. And the cost of the de- decoupling is quite high. 
Now, some of the decoupling will make sense. We're going to have more resilient supply chains. We're going to have more manufacturing in the United States. That's all good. But the tensions are not good. All of these countries have huge militaries. They have all sorts of ways where they play to their domestic politics and they can do negative things. I think it's really important that we understand that as you decouple from China, and they are perfectly capable of building their own ships and their own software, they're not coming back. And that hurts us. We are stronger globally when we have a common information platform, when we communicate with each other. The net of this is we need more communication, not less, less positioning against more and figure out ways to collaborate. We're never going to be great friends, but we can collaborate on common problems such as the pandemic. But how do we do that if we don't trust them? Well, you can you can uh, in business, you have all sorts of examples of people who've been able to work together without trusting the other company. Why can't we do that at a nation state level? All you have to do is basically have diplomats who can sit there and argue through this stuff. It is in America's interest that American platforms, in particular, all the computer platforms and networking platforms spread globally. It makes no sense to block that. It makes everything. So the way I think of it is when we compete, we want to win. Um, I, I strongly believe that American technology can win against all of the other challengers around the world because we're so good at this. So we need to get on a footing where we try to get these countries, including China, to use our platforms, not the opposite. Okay. Uh, Eric Schmidt, it's always good to see you. We appreciate you joining us this morning. Uh, thanks and good luck uh, helping the state of New York and uh, the rest of us all try to uh, figure out what comes next. So thank you again. Okay. Thank you all. Next on Swap Pod, how the COVID-19 pandemic will impact women differently in the long run, CNBC contributor Joanne Lippman. The reason that we've made so many gains is because there was such a tight labor market and the unemployment rate was so low. And once you have a high unemployment rate, a lot of these diversity um, efforts just go out the window. We'll be right back. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. This is Squawk Pod. Here's Becky Quick. The economic fallout of the pandemic has hit women disproportionately hard. CNBC contributor Joanne Lippman writing today that the pandemic may cause a she-session, and that could impact diversity in the workplace for years to come. Let's bring in Joanne Lippman. She is Distinguished Fellow for Journalism at the Institute for Advanced Study in Princeton. She's also a CNBC contributor. And Joanne, it's great to see you. Good morning. Great to see you, Becky. Thanks for having me. Uh, this is not just a theory. This is borne out by the numbers. Women were 55 percent of the people who were laid off um, since this all began, right? That's right. And it's not only um, women as a whole. If you look at the different groups of, of, of workers in the different age cohorts, there's an especially uh, huge differential between men and women at the youngest ages from 20 to 24, at the older ages, over 50, um, women of color, also, it's a huge issue. And, and a big piece of it is that women are overrepresented in the industries that have been hit the hardest. And we're talking about things like hospitality and travel and restaurants and childcare. care. Um, and they also make up 
more than 60% of the lowest wage earners. And then there's this added wrinkle, Becky, that, um, that I think you know well, I know well, which is that women, it actually does fall on women disproportionately at home during this time period, the homeschooling, the, the cooking and the housework, et cetera, the child care. And these are all issues that my concern, I will tell you, um, having worked in this area for a couple of years now, is that these losses will be sustained. And there's actually, there was a white paper that came out recently uh, that came to the same conclusion, that these losses will be persistent and they're not going to come back. The reason being that um, the reason that we have seen gains from women, and by the way, I think you know this, that you know earlier this year, women had, for the first time, were the majority of the workforce. The problem mm-hmm. is that what we see is that the, the reason that we've made so many gains is because there was such a tight labor market and the unemployment rate was so low. And once you have a high unemployment rate, a lot of these diversity um, efforts just go out the window. Joanne, that, I think you're right that these losses could be permanent, particularly because of the industries that were hit so hard in this situation. But you've got some thoughts about how we might be able to fix some of that. We were talking earlier this morning that if the schools don't open back up, it makes it really difficult for a lot of parents to go back to work. Um, and that includes, of course, a lot of women, uh, working moms. What, what could we potentially do on that front to try and help? Yeah, there's quite a few things that we can do, and we have to act now. So, for for example, we talked about the schools. What we're not talking about so much is daycare. And as anybody knows who's at home right now with their preschoolers, if you don't have daycare, you cannot go back to work. And currently, you know, you were talking earlier about Tesla, um, where Elon Musk said, if you choose not to come back, you don't get unemployment benefits. Well, there are a lot of parents and mothers in particular, there's more than 11 million single parents out there, the majority of whom are women. If they don't have childcare, they can't go out. So I think we need to look at when we're looking at these federal stimulus programs, we have to look more carefully at childcare. Can we support childcare? And over the long term, is this something that we need to think about federally funding or federally federal subsidies the way that we do for public schools? Um, we also need to think about Things like um, paid leave, uh, paid family leave, obviously, is something that's been percolating for a long time. I think we see now more than ever how important that is. Paid sick leave. I mean, paid family leave is something that every other industrialized country in the world has, except for the United States. I also would love to see some guardrails put around how we invest in companies. So Goldman Sachs, we know, took this very baby step uh, last year that they got a lot of attention for, that they're not going to take your company public unless you have one woman on your board. But why don't we extend that? I mean, why, you know, let's let's have some other, of um, you know, why not? We're not going to invest in your company unless you actually have equitable pay, for example, uh, unless you have equitable family leave, for example. I mean, the fact is we're not going to get this economy back on track if we sort of ignore half of the working population. Hey, hey Joanne, just a policy yeah. question. And I, I'm, I'm, I'm usually very sympathetic to, to your cause in this, in this fight. Um, in this particular instance, I, and I think you said it because of the way the industries that were most impacted, I think that, that this is a ramification less of... of the implicit bias that's in the system, though, I, I don't I don't want to suggest there isn't. Uh, you go back and look at the financial crisis of 2008, by the way, and it disproportionately uh, hurt, hurt men, oddly enough, for, 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 yeah. for whatever reason. Uh, the question I would ask you is, 
Um, we can do all the things you're talking about, but that doesn't necessarily change the dynamic in these particular industries. In these industries, do you want to change the mix of gender? Is that is that one of the things you're saying? Because you, the other piece of this is you look at people who, are, who, who have uh, college educations, don't have college educations. I mean, that's where the, the true mass gap is in terms of who's being who's been hurt by this. Right. And Andrew, you're making fantastic points, which I completely agree with. I think the issue is at this point, we are really actually not paying attention to the very basics before you can even get to what you're talking about, which is sort of making a more equitable, um, uh, 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 professional sort of, of situation. We have to actually make we have to allow women to be able to go back to work. Joanne, it's great to see you. Thanks for your time today. Thank you. Squawk Pod will be right back. People today can spend half their lives over 50. So it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older, like a family vacation. Or starting your dream business. Welcome to Connie's Coffee. How may I help you? AARP's trusted financial tools can help you plan for whatever your future holds. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Start planning today at aarp.org slash money tools. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. That's the show for today. Thank you for listening to this podcast. Squawk Box is hosted by Joe Kernan, Becky Quick, and Andrew Ross Sorkin. Tune in weekday mornings on CNBC at 6 a.m. Eastern. Tweet us at Squawk CNBC and subscribe to Squawk Pod wherever you get your podcasts. We'll meet you back here tomorrow. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx.